This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 4th, 2017. The You Know This Title is Coming, the Deface the Nation edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is joining from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And the defacer-in-chief himself, John Dickerson of Face the Nation, is on the road in a car. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. I'm headed back from Reading, Pennsylvania. Lucky you. you. I've always wondered why it isn't Reading, Pennsylvania, but we're not going to talk about that. It's spelled reading, right? Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know, maybe a listener from there can weigh in. Emily, you're from Pennsylvania. Why? What's the answer? I don't know the answer to that. I never thought of that it should be reading because I just grew up with it being reading. Like the idea of it not being reading to me seems strange. Well, it's the English town is also reading and it's the Reading Railroad. But why there? Why even to begin with? Anyway. We will not discuss that on this week's GabFest. On this week's GabFest, John Dickerson's interview with President Trump was one of the big stories of the week. We will get down and dirty with John about what it revealed and uh, how it went and why it was in, why it was significant. Then Hillary Clinton returns and blames her defeat on herself, but also on the Comey letter and Russian hacking. Why are liberals so angry at her? Then the fury over New York Times new op-ed columnist Brett Stevens. And we are not talking about health care reform because as we tape on Thursday morning, the vote is coming soon, apparently. Whatever we say will be mooted by the time you happen to be listening to this. So instead, we are planning to do an extra gab fest tomorrow, a health care uh, reform, a Trump care uh, short gab fest that will air on Friday. So that's why there's no health care coming today. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, you get to give one U.S. government official one extra power. Who is it? What do you give them? If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash Plus. And of course, two announcements quickly. On Wednesday, May 10th, that is next Wednesday, we have a DC Live show at the Warner Theater. There's still a few tickets left, slate.com slash live. It's going to be amazing. We have so much news there's so much happening in politics, and uh, we can't wait to see you live. And we are also going to have a special guest who is Evan McMullen, the conservative presidential candidate and anti-Trump conservative, joining us. So that will add a frisson, a frisson of excitement to what will already be a thrilling evening. So go to slate.com slash live for tickets to that. And then in just about a month, on June 7th, Wednesday, we will be at the Robert and Judy Newman Center for the Performing Arts in Denver, Colorado for our first live show ever in Denver. Please join us for that. There are also tickets at slate.com slash live for the Denver show as well. Can't wait to see you at both of them. John Dickerson weekended with President Trump. He conducted a series of interviews that were shared on various elements of the Tiffany Network on Face the Nation, other CBS programs over the past few days. In one interview, the president abruptly stopped answering questions when John politely nudged him about Trump's accusation that President Obama had wiretapped him. And another, the president, of course, uh, slandered and mocked John Cho as to face the nation. It was one in a series of 100-day interviews the president conducted, including another one in which he claimed Andrew Jackson would have prevented the Civil War. So, John, first of all, Mazel Tov, you conducted yourself with clarity and grace, a clarity and grace that are rare and admirable. And... Uh, so I have actually have a I, I have some inside dope questions. So first of all, how do you maintain your equilibrium and your clarity when talking to such a destabilizing subject? Um, well, I uh, actually I'm sure I'm, this is I'm not being facetious. I'm sure actually all of the years of our you know back and forth. Um, <laughs> David, uh, you are I'm surely a I'm the Donald Trump. I'm the Donald Trump. Yeah. 
Um, I think also the other thing is, you know, when he uh, when he said deface the nation, it was the second. It was the like we had just finished talking about North Korea. It was the sort of second question, or not really, but it was the second set of questions about what he'd learned in the office. And the a lot of people um, on Twitter, at least, were saying, you know, how could you possibly stand that? And isn't that a total insult? I, I it actually didn't strike me that way. It's not about me. So I, I mean. The whole interview isn't about me. It's not. So I didn't. I didn't even take note of it. You know, and there were people who wanted me to like storm out and have some confrontation, which just seems to me to be the exact opposite of what uh, my job is. The biggest thing is that, you know, you have this opportunity, which is incredibly humbling in terms of you. You got a lot of work to do for the people who are watching, and the list of questions was super long. I mean, we didn't even scratch the surface of a lot of questions that a lot of people. Uh, who work at Face Nation, but a lot of effort into researching. And we spent a lot of time circling around and combing through and making sure they were, you know, right and accurate and in context and all the rest. And so you're basically thinking every utterance that isn't getting an answer to one of those questions, just you have to ignore and trying to get back to what you're trying to get done because you know the clock is ticking like at triple speed or what felt like triple speed. So I guess all of that just keeps you kind of focused. So, John, what was really effective, I think, was that you were asking the president to explain things like, how is your health care bill going to work? How is it different? And then obviously he either didn't know what was in the bill or wasn't going to grapple with what was actually there. I mean, did you have a sense in that moment that because I, I thought, well, I thought what you were doing was being quite insistent, but in a very low-key, kind of smiling, unaggressive way. And I, I imagine that that was like a deliberate strategy you thought about. But is that the case? Well, you know, as we've talked about on the show, like the one of the biggest challenges from the administration, and, and you know, we talked about this during the campaign, is nobody explains anything anymore. All that's being done in the pe- in people's names that's going to change people's lives, and particularly with respect to healthcare, like you have to explain why you're doing what you're doing. That it seems to me to be the sort of basic job of the government somewhere. Um, and I thought specifically with the healthcare questions, I was trying to get answers to from him. He had said, "Think of two things at the center of the Trump presidency. One is he's going to fight for the forgotten man, and two, he's a great negotiator by his own claims." He has said and told Tucker Carlson in the middle of, of March, I'm going to fight to change this bill so that it won't hurt the people I'm fighting for, the forgotten man. So it was an opportunity to say, OK, what have you done since then for this your key constituency using this thing you say is your greatest skill? It seems to me to, it was a set of questions and getting him to explain it is right at the heart of his presidency. And just simply to get him to say what he meant turned out to be quite hard. He His answer about the way in which the bill had been changed from its previous deficiencies was about pre-existing conditions, which was a kind of a side road. It's not really the it's a response, but not an answer to the question. John, to press on that for a second in a in a Dickersonian way, in a Dickersonian v. Trump kind of way. So you you really talked to him a lot about the pre-existing conditions question. You were trying to get him to make guarantees or to describe specifically what's in the bill. And I was of two minds as I watched that one mind was this is great to try to get him to, to pin him down and to get him to make a statement, a, a kind of definitive statement about what is in the bill and what it does for people with preexisting conditions. And then on the other hand, I thought, well, okay, but we have a president who has shown such a willingness to simply lie and to, to abandon anything he said 10 minutes earlier that any commitment he makes, any specific thing that he says, has no it has no weight at all anyway. So I'm wondering, I mean, actually, this is a question maybe as much for Emily as it is for you, John. Like, if we have a president who is so willing to not stick to anything, does it matter if he ever says anything definitive? Well, I think that it is useful, though, to get him to say how things had changed or how this bill would actually work, because what he revealed was that he was totally oblivious and didn't know the answers, unless you think he was lying. But I thought that he just didn't know what he was talking about. And so then Americans know that, that this president who is... uh 
trying very hard to radically alter a healthcare system that affects tens of millions of people actually doesn't really know what these changes would do and is just focused on the win in a kind of like veep Selena Meyer's way as opposed to like what he actually is um, planning to do once the bill becomes reality. Um, that seems important to me and, and worth airing. And I don't know what else you could possibly get from him, just given the way his communication skills work. Right. Would you, do you agree with that assessment, John? Yeah, I think you're, you know, I think you're just trying with the, with the president to get new benchmarks on what it is that he believes. And w- the notion of, of universal care is just long away. And the notion of things that are that would be put back into the bill to help with the subsidies for those who are uh, near poor um, or those who are elderly. Um, you know, he had no answer for that. So I think it's a um, I mean, again, I'm just trying to get an explanation with respect to these crucial ideas that it seems to me are at the heart of his constituency and his presidency and just trying to get those nailed down. I mean, I think it's worth it. I did it on Medicare, too, because I think you have to constantly sort of get a sense of where things really are instead of allowing statements that can kind of then be refuted later because they are vague. John, you have interviewed presidents before. How was doing an interview with this president different than interviews you've done with presidents past? Uh, Well, the weirdest thing, of course, is that, you know, it looks like it's a conversation between two people and there are, you know, 40, 30 or so people standing around you. That's what it's like when you're sitting there. And then it was basically like every other of the 19 previous interviews with President Trump, except he was a little more interrupting than um, he had been in previous ones. And obviously, it was different than President um, Obama in that President Obama would it was impossible to get off of his 45-minute responses. President Bush used to interrupt some, but nothing close to the way President Trump does. So what did happen at the end? I mean, when he obviously got frustrated, didn't want to repeat, apparently, his ridiculous insult toward President Obama, but he, like, stopped making eye contact with you before he kind of dismissed you and went back to his desk. Was that as weird in the moment as it played on television? It was pretty weird in the moment. You know, he once he raised the issue of why he wouldn't talk to President Obama, I became obviously very curious and why he, why he wouldn't sign, kind of say more than that. And then what he was... So I was just... Um, trying to get the answer it was just like two people talking and i want to i just want to know why this thing that he'd put into the conversation what the logical conclusion of that was when he abruptly cut it off i was kind of caught up short because i yeah i was it was um surprising and then what do you and then i was sort of like well okay what do i do now i guess i'll see myself out so it was uh, um <laughs> it, it was it was uh, it was weird but then you know after that, things got back on track and we continued the, um, I flew up with him to the rally in Harrisburg and then, uh, interviewed him a couple of times later in the day. And, um, you know, he let me know he thought it was a stupid set of questions, but, you know, he also, uh, was there for more questions too. So he's done that before, you know, he's said that right. he's thought, he's thought I was, uh, you know, he's called me dishonest and other things, but, you know, he's also sat and, and down for questions. So it's a, it's a mix with the president. Emily, let's turn to one other thing that came out of uh, Trump's series of 100-day interviews, which was this very curious comment he made about Andrew Jackson and the Civil War. He said that that Jackson could have forestalled it, and why did we fight that war? Why did we fight it anyway? What did you make of that? And is it an important insight at all? So, I mean, I was shocked because it seemed that Trump had never really thought about the role that slavery obviously played in causing the Civil War. It's it's, it's a question with such an obvious answer. I guess I think that if you know anything about American history, that might be something that, like, stuck in your brain. And so it's revealing to see the depths of his ignorance. I mean, and upsetting because it also suggested that in Trump's transactional way of thinking that like, oh, you know, maybe this could have been managed. People, slavery could have continued. Uh, Why have a crisis? Why fight a war over ending it? Jamel Bowie, I thought, wrote a great piece about, you know, the enormous costs that would have had and just what it means to have someone in office who doesn't seem to be horrified by the immorality of that whole idea. But there is part of me that actually thinks it's helpful that we, that Trump is willing to be so 
um, blunt in these moments and that we're finding out that, you know, he didn't know that Frederick Douglass was dead, apparently, or the various other gaffes he's made. There is a way in which he is very transparent about all the things he doesn't know. You know, it goes along with all the comments he's made about, like, who knew healthcare was so complicated, and a 10-minute conversation with the leader of China makes him realize that the Chinese relationship with North Korea is totally different. He's telling us along the way what his learning curve is, and there is something, I think, useful about finding out about that. I actually had a much simpler explanation, which is that Andrew Jackson, he's he's able to maintain a very small number of points People in his in head, his head right? and one of them is andrew jackson he's just clearly decided he's been told you're like andrew jackson your campaign was like andrew jackson he's strongly identified with andrew jackson who i doubt he knew anything really about andrew ja- about, jackson right? before he people started telling him that and therefore he's willing to attribute to jackson all kinds of virtues and all kinds of capacity which jackson a didn't have b was unable to uh, jackson couldn't have prevented the civil war because it of course occurred many years after his death but he's willing to ascribe virtue to Jackson and thus ascribe virtue to himself because he's so uh, he's he's decided that's the p- historical figure he's going to identify with. Oh, I think that's totally right for the part about Jackson. It was just the riff about like, hey, why did they fight that war anyway? To me, that was like the more revealing part of it. John, what did you think? One of the things that it made me think about is that when he was a candidate, he basically thought that Washington didn't work because people were either stupid or corrupt. And so he thought, once I get there, it'll all be, you know, done and dusted pretty quickly because I'm I'm uh, smarter and I know how to kind of get around stupid bureaucratic systems. So, uh, you know, it's like the permitting process in New York. He's He knows a guy who can get it done. He doesn't have to wait for six weeks. He can get it done in six hours. What you would think is that when confronted by the complexities of all those things that have been mentioned, whether it's China, the Export-Import Bank, NATO, Russia, um, healthcare that he would then say, well, I guess things are more complicated than I thought, and people aren't, you know, cynical or just stupid. So in the historical context, that's, he seemed to be going back to this notion that just the application of my talents, or I think David has uh, said it perfectly, with his slash Jackson's talents, would have solved the problem. The problems are not insoluble because of the component parts of the problem. They are insoluble because a person with genius skills hasn't come into contact with them. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for a birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hillary Clinton returned more prominently to the public eye this week at a Women for Women event in New York. In an interview with Christine Amanpour, she talked about why she lost the election a bit. She honed in on the Comey letter to Congress in late October about the renewed investigation into her email as being a key cause of her loss and the Russian hacking of John Podesta and other Democratic databases as being another cause of it. This These comments arrived uh, at the same time as a magisterial Nate Silver assessment in 538 that argued that the Comey letter almost certainly shaved at least 1% and as much as 5% off her vote and thus almost certainly also cost her the election. Um, Emily, why is there so much fury at her after these comments? Is it deserved? Is she is she ducking responsibility for losing to this, this terrible uh, president we have? 
If we're going to have this conversation yet again about which factors were to blame, Nate saying that Comey cost Clinton the election has much more credibility than Hillary Clinton saying it cost her the election because she is absolving herself of responsibility. And I think a lot of her supporters feel like, yes, there were these external factors in Comey's letter maybe the biggest among them. And look, given the margin of victory in the three states in the Electoral College that cost her, sure, it could be Comey. But also, it has been useful to think about the problems with her candidacy and the ways in which the Democrats made mistakes along the way. And so I think the idea that now the story is going to be we're just going to dump this all on James Comey and Hillary Clinton and her people are going to walk away scot-free, that is really irritating to a lot of the people who've been watching this. So I just feel like, as so often the case with Hillary Clinton, there's just something a little bit self-destructive, shooting oneself in the foot about her timing and and also the degree to which she's making statements that are just self-serving, even if she's right. Uh, huh. huh. Go ahead, disagree. But she's right about, she's absolutely right about Comey and the Russians. She's right that those had a huge impact. I mean, of course, they are not dispositive there are a million other things everything determined it was like it was right. like florida in 2000 did. everything caused her to lose the election you can pick any any single thing that happened in the election that's why she lost the numbers are so small but um but, right, but she didn't say that she said i would have been your president if the election was on the october 27th as well, that's, if like and that's, that's true, true. that may, looks like it is probably true according to nate's analysis which seemed persuasive but she didn't then say and i also know i made mistakes that could have also made the difference right well she did right say, including the underlying mistake which was having the server off the books that caused the whole rigmarole in the first place um, right. And I think that's one of the criticisms is that had she played by the rules, Comey wouldn't have had to exist. The question is on this particular Hillary Clinton question is how much did she contribute by having the server to the bad outcome, which is to say her loss. And if you can write figure that out, it then seems to me to set a standard or at least set an interesting uh, measuring stick against whatever happens in the current administration. Because you could imagine that the president who basically does not take the blame for anything is going to be in a position where he's going to have to take the blame for something and won't and will blame other things. And so I find this an instructive moment to think about that. And, you know, obviously Hillary Clinton contributed to her fix specifically with respect to James Comey. And it's ducking that, that it seems to me is, is uh, part of what was at issue here. But Okay. It, we, I'm not going to relitigate the stupid server. It was obviously an incredibly dumb thing that she did. It, it was a dumbness that reflected a, a failure of her character and, and a shortcoming of hers and a paranoia that exists in her. And and therefore, by all means, she she should be punished. But it, it seems to me sick and depressing, the idea that this this single mistake, which was a mistake, like should should have so much consequence when weighed against all of the things that other politicians have done and do do when weighed against you know what it is that Donald Trump does and has done that is that is more corrupt or more more uh compromising and it's well, it's just it's just it's not that it's wrong it's not that it's not that you're you're absolutely right the the server is consequential i mean the server is enormous but it is it became much more enormous than it deserved given the ways in which all of us sin and make mistakes in our professional lives. I think that's an interesting argument. My only point was just in terms of the the interview with Christiane and Poor and the and as Hillary Clinton looks back and you know if this is a question of how much is her blame and how much is to blame others, I think mentioning the the original problem with the server is among the things that if she were giving a full and fair and perhaps impossible for anyone to give assessment of the of what caused things, her decision and her team's decision to set up this server in the first place has to be somewhere in the conversation. And its lack of being in the conversation and acknowledgement that it initiated Comey, I think, is is an omission. Emily, one th conclusion I've reached actually over the past few months is, of course, I wish that Hillary Clinton had won the election. And I think Donald Trump is an incredibly dangerous president for all kinds of reasons that we've discussed in the show but uh liberals are also kidding themselves they don't 
realize that the, that a Hillary Clinton presidency would be dismal, that there would be no possibility of congressional action given what the Congress is, that Obamacare would probably be in even worse shape, that the Democratic cause and the cause of progressive action would be probably in worse shape than it is today. Maybe. I mean, I definitely think you're right about the grinding frustration and gridlock of Washington, and um, that would have been really frustrating to watch for progressives. I also think, though, that, you know, from a progressive standpoint, President Trump's presidency is doing real harm. I mean, immigrants are being rounded up in numbers and in ways that didn't happen before. We may, I mean, I don't, who knows what's right. going to happen with health care, but the Obamacare exchanges are teetering in a way that actually I don't think they would have been because the Clinton administration would have worked really hard to shore them up. So there is a real human cost. Yeah, sorry. I I, I was sorry. I, I Of course. I, I didn't mean to say that. It, politically. It is, it is polit- I'm saying that politically. The politics. The politics yeah, of so, it. That it. No, of course, as a matter of human comfort and 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 the ways people are treated, in my view, obviously, what you just said, of course, is true. I'm talking about the the, the state of par- democratic politics. Right. I mean, that I think we just don't know the answer yet. You know, it feels like this progressive resistance has a lot of energy to it and could make real change. And that, you know, if Trump's approval ratings stay low and there's a real rejection of, of the all the mishugas and the harm of his presidency and of the Republican Congress, then that could be something that Democrats wind up looking back on as having been worth the loss of Hillary Clinton's presidency. But I just think we don't know the answer yet because we don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, the other thing about this question of her server and its role and omitting it what you know, Nate, I think, also wants us all to think about the role the media played in how important we thought the server was, how much attention we gave to it. The elevation of that story to these heights was something that was a creature of the press to a large degree. And I think that is also a conversation that's worth having as we figure out what to make of this new regime and all of the things it's doing. Do, does the press have its priorities straight? Is it giving the right amount of attention to various issues? That's really hard calculus to get right. But those are questions that are really worth asking, I think. Right. Do you guys agree with that conclusion that I think Nate Silver makes, which is that the media essentially was covering Hillary Clinton as a victorious candidate and treating everything that happened over the last, really the last month of the election as for its impact that it would have on a future Clinton presidency and thus downplayed various aspects of dismaying aspects of what Trump was doing, including the Russia connections, and then overplayed the the scandals around what Clinton, particularly around email and whom Abedin and Wiener. I absolutely think that's true. And I think that uh, Nate had good examples of it. Does additional coverage, would it have changed those opinions? If people were already going to excuse him for the Access Hollywood tape, for not releasing his tax returns for changing his positions on lots of things. If they were had already locked in on that place, what, why would they have changed if there had been X percentage more coverage of the the Russian thing or, or anything else? But think of all those people. I knew a lot of people who said they're both corrupt. It's, you know, they're both, it's two evils who really cares. And that was a product of, thinking of this email story as equivalent to Trump's sins. I mean, the media did, but is that I think, the press, absolutely Is that the press's that. fault, or is that the person who's making that c- conclusion and thinking there's an equivalency's fault? Well, but it's... The, but you're also talking about people who stayed home, who just felt like, who cares about this election? These people are both bad news. But, it, but it's also the press's fault, because the press has chosen to give equal weight to each of their their particular misdeeds and actually overweight the Clinton misdeeds because of this presumptive that she's the presumptive president and therefore much more do do needs much more examination. I mean, the, the, the Russia, whatever happened with Russia, we don't know yet, but if, if a third of what we know to be true or what we believe to, to what we suspect is true, that is one of the most outrageous scandals in American political history. history. Yeah. And compared to the server, it is a gigantic pyramid of wickedness and uh, misdeed. And that's the idea that there, those two things are kind of roughly at the same level in the media coverage because of a, a kind of false equanimity or false even handedness 
does create the phenomenon that Emily's talking about, which is that people are like, well, oh, they're both bad. They're both equally bad. Eh, who cares? I won't vote or I'll just, you know, I'll vote for change. Well, it depends on what you mean by the Russia story, because there's still no proof of collusion between the campaign and the Russians. And there certainly wasn't at the end of the election. There was the idea that the Russians were involved in the election and that the, the then candidate Trump, now President Trump, had a strange response to that and, and, and a constant appreciation and affection for Vladimir Putin. But that was... That's where things stood at that time. Well, it's not like there was it's John, not like there, there was, was evidence absolute, of collusion. Of course, there's evidence of collusion. There's absolutely evidence of collusion because Trump himself actively encouraged the Russian. He encouraged those leaks. He was certainly colluding with WikiLeaks. If by collusion well, but, you mean encourage encouraging break ins and the release of information, he did it. I mean, he literally did that. So you can't say well, there was I mean, no evidence loud, of but collusion. That's but no, that's different than actually saying, getting on the phone and working with people to actually get this information out. Yes, he said something at a uh, press conference, and that's, you know, that w- did not go unmentioned. It went mentioned many, 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 many times. But the ultimate thing, which is person from Trump orbit calling Russian hackers and colluding to re- have a pattern of, of disclosures that would hurt Hillary Clinton, has yet to be proved. Um, and it wasn't at the time. You just had it's that. It's funny, though, because the public part of it is is so damning on its own. Like, there's a way in which we already know all of these things happened, right? I mean, there are Giuliani's comments. Like, there's Roger Stone. They they had intel from the things that they said publicly. But we are still looking for the secret coordination that may or may not have been happening. I can't decide how much it even really matters. But I also think that Comey is going to go down in all of this as someone who has an enormous amount to account for. And he, before Congress this week, was very defensive about his decisions to be public about key aspects of the Clinton investigation while shielding the Russia-Trump investigation. And he has a whole justification about the timing and what he knew when, etc. I find it really dubious and unconvincing, not because I think he should have told us more about Trump-Russia necessarily, because as you're saying, John, like, it's not clear what they really knew before the election that they should have revealed. It's his decisions to go public about this investigation into someone who was not getting indicted at these crucial moments. I just, you know, <laughs> there's no one at the Justice Department who's a career official or who follows us who I've talked to who thinks that makes any sense. He created these own rules for himself that broke the rules, and he still hasn't owned up for it. I guess he can't, but it's pretty striking. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Brett Stevens arrived this week as the New York Times new op-ed columnist. He was poached from the Wall Street Journal to be a conservative voice in the largely liberal paper and the largely liberal uh, opinion section of the paper. He joins David Brooks and Ross Douthat as the really the conservative voices, the anti-Trump conservatives on that page. He is another white guy, as a, a lot of other people are, including me. Uh, so... Emily, do you want to just quickly, I, I don't know if you want to say something because you're a New York Times employee too. So do you want to I'm a New York Times that? employee too. Yeah. I mean, I feel a lot of loyalty to this institution. I love working there. So yes, full disclosure about that. I work at the magazine as everybody who listens to the show knows. You can all decide how much that's going to really, well, anyway. What, what did, what did uh, Stephen's initial column say that so infuriated people? Who got angry? Why did they get angry, Emily? Liberals got angry because he was claiming more uncertainty about climate change in in terms of minimizing the risks of climate change than most scientists think exists. And then he had this very one-sided conclusion. It's true that there is uncertainty. There's unknowns about the degree to which climate change is going to affect the planet. You know, the normal range we talk about is one and a half degrees of warming to four and a half. But if you want to take that seriously, then you think, well, maybe we need to 
over prepare because it could be even worse than we think. And all of Stevens's um, loading of the uncertainty dice was in favor of doing less and minimizing the risk. And he also had this, I think, like kind of real sophistry in the way he got to that argument. He started with um, the idea that the Clinton people were wrong in their calculations about the election and kind of went from that kind of error to this other kind of uncertainty, which was really sneaky and unsatisfying intellectually. So I thought it was a terrible column. I So uh, I will not defend the column. I will defend two things about the column, however. First of all, I massively welcome that gamesmanship to go in and for your first column, just be like, I'm going to troll you, you New York Times readers. I'm going to give you everything that you're going to hate. I'm going to take on Hillary Clinton. I'm going to take on climate change. I'm going to take on your expertise and your elitism. And I'm just going to go straight at it. I thought was I was like, huzzah to you. Um, And also what it also sets up is there'll be now a strange new respect that will come once he does write his Trump attack. People will be like, even Brett Stevens, the the conservative who's been so outrageous, even he disapproves of what Donald Trump is doing. I just genuinely admire the kind of moxie of, of doing that, number one. Number two, he's a conservative. He was making actually, I thought, a fundamentally conservative argument, which I loved, which is that he was against certainty. The world is ambiguous. Change is dangerous. Let's be cautious in a world where we don't we we may not know the solution. We may be able to identify a problem. We may not know what the solution is. Let us be cautious and conservative. And I thought like that is what a conservative thinks and embodies. And yeah, it was it was intellectually dishonest and misleading. Um, Why is that conservative and like, why wouldn't it be conservative and cautious to plan to have insurance, essentially, for this looming potential disaster? If you're really going to be cautious and prudent in your planning, you don't, you know, fiddle while Rome burns, which what he was essentially arguing for. That is one possible way of looking at it. Another way is if you read his follow up column, what he pointed out is that we are not necessarily sure how to solve the problems that we've created, that the solutions we have are not sufficient to the problem we've created, and therefore we should be cautious about trying to solve the problem. And that maybe if we try to solve it by uh, stifling economic growth or limiting transportation or 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 co- having people produce ethanol, which was a, an idea that people had five or ten years ago, we may cause much worse problems. And that's... Uh, I don't look. A, I don't I mean, necessarily that's a totally agree with thing it. To debate like that's different from all y'all climate folks are exaggerating and pretending Armageddon is coming when it's really not. Like cut it out, right? And he also he, that's not what know, he said. He just said way, he said let's like, be oh, cautious. Let's be. He but said let's climate- be cautious about it. Let's be cautious about it. And I'm going to be very hesitant about attributing everything to man's activity and to knowing what the solution is. And that seems I don't agree with that conclusion, but it seems to me a perfectly reasonable position that someone can reach and one that I am very glad to see articulated on the pages of The New York Times also. Explain further. I think I know what you mean, but why the larger benefit of taking that point of view on the pages of The New York Times does what good thing in the world? I mean, I think I know what it is, but... One of the many things that's under threat in the world today is the idea that we're allowed to have heterodoxy in any institution, that we have to divide everything up by political loyalty and every and there's a hue to a party line. And because I'm an old fogey, I still cling to the idea that there is a space for heterodoxy and that there's that actually this kind of... Um, give and take, even with somebody who makes an argument that you find intellectually dishonest or misleading, is actually creates value and creates, first of all, it causes you to test your own, as a reader, it causes you to test your own premises and think about it more harshly and examine yourself more more critically. And second of all, it just creates a possibility of dialogue that didn't exist when, when everyone's in their own bubble. Totally I agree. totally agree with that. I do wonder... Given that he is one of only whatever it is, like six or eight people, whether um, it would be more interesting to have that slot filled by someone who is not, you know, New York and D.C. elite, who has who is pro-Trump, who comes from a different part of the country, who is going to shine a light on, you know, why people are so frustrated as to support Trump. Like, I wonder if the defense that James Bennett, the opinion editor, has been giving of Stevens is about diversity. And I wonder if Stevens really represents enough diversity. But, you know, let's see. 
This is only the beginning. What, can I just jump in there on that question of pro-Trump versus conservative? I wonder, uh, as a fan of everything David just said, whether you obviously want the pro-Trump case, but the pro, you want it all over the place because he's the president. But that seems to be a more just sort of straight up partisan sort of affection for Trump, whereas the line between where conservatism begins and ends relative to the president, who occasionally intersects with the interests of conservatism, I think that's the thing that gets super blurred and needs articulation so that people can make conclusions and engage in the kind of dialogue and conversation that David is talking about, and that the greater threat to intellectual engagement is the boosterism of partisanship. So I would prefer less boosterism of partisanship and more bright line discussions about coming from whichever ideological perspective, but where the what's driving the boat is empiricism and ideology and not simply uh, fandom. Good point. Stevens is another anti-Trump conservative. They, they already have a couple of those on the page and David Brooks and, and Ross Douthat. How do you think the New York Times or any entity goes around finding a very smart person who can represent Trumpism? Should they do that? Yeah, sure. They should try. I think that, but I think the line to to watch is you don't. I don't think the editorial page is, is as they've defined it, is a place for just. I mean, I think that's why Emily was unsettled by the quality of the argument. That to the extent that the quality of the argument on the left or the right is so shoddy that it descends into just simple um, kind of cheerleading then that's not getting anybody anywhere that you the, the so it's a question of of point of view but also strength of argument i don't know what the responsibility is of an editorial page is it to represent the point of view no matter how well the argument is made or to represent strong arguments and if that if that doesn't get you a i mean in the best of all worlds yes you'd have a really sharp reason thinker who could make the case for um whatever is at the heart of President Trump. Um, but absent that, maybe you just take care of that in the edit, in the regular part of the newspaper where you cover honestly and in context and without the kind of strange anthropological approach that sometimes takes to covering Trump voters, but actually cover them straight up. Maybe you just have to do that in the, in the paper to make sure that people who want to inform themselves have a sufficient understanding of, of that portion of the electorate uh, and that portion of the country. Let's go to cocktail chatter. My mother, uh, an avid Gavis listener, sent us a lovely Ogden Nash poem about yeah. alcohol um, just as an inspiration for cocktail chatter. I'm just going to read the first we should post it. verse of it. It goes on in the same vein. There's something about a martini, a tingle remarkably pleasant, a yellow, a mellow martini. I wish I had one at present. There's something about a martini ere the dining and dancing begin. And to tell you the truth, it's not the vermouth. I think that perhaps it's the gin. Anyway, it goes on and on with very nice uh, rhymes about cocktail chatter. So uh, in Ogden Nash's spirit, Emily, what is your chatter? So North Carolina, man, I feel worried about North Carolina. Reading about North Carolina while watching The Handmaid's Tale is not doing good things for my sleeping. The Republican legislature is, again, making moves that really are about entrenching um, their own partisan power. They have a bill to reduce the state court of appeals from 15 to 12 judges, and they also have a new bill to, again, mess around with the state elections and ethics boards. This is this idea of, oh, the boards will be bipartisan, but hey, guess what? They'll be chaired by a Republican in presidential election years and a Democrat in midterm election years. Uh, you know, I just... Just, we've already had a, a three-judge panel strike down this idea of merging these boards, and the Republicans have a veto-proof majority in the Assembly in North Carolina. So presumably Governor Cooper's going to veto these bills and they'll come into law anyway. And I just wish this wasn't happening right now. I feel like this is such an important moment to preserve institutions and our whole rule of law and the way in which the government works to transfer power back 
and forth between the parties when that is the will of the electorate. I know that there have been other moments in history in which it was Democrats who made changes. The reason there are 15 judges on this court to begin with it was that um, Governor Jim Hunt in 2000, who was a Democrat, appointed three judges on the day before he left office. So, yes, you can al- always argue here tit for tat, but I just like desperately wish we could have a moment in which cooler heads prevail and we just acknowledge the crucial ways in which we need to be able to to have different parties come into power. And I guess along these lines, like one of the best things that happened this week was that Mitch McConnell said that he wasn't going to get rid of the filibuster in the Senate for legislation as Trump had asked for, because that is a power grab that would be available to the Republicans right now and that would be tremendously destabilizing. So I really am not someone who's usually a big fan of Mitch McConnell, but I did find that to be a relief. What to me, what's shocking is, is here you have a state that's managed to elect a Democratic governor that Democrats don't even have their, their themselves together enough to have enough legislators to prevent vetoes from being overturned. That's astonishing. That just shows astonishingly how little power they have at the state level. Ah, but it's not because of all of the ways in which the Republicans have messed around with elections and made it harder for people of color in particular to vote. I mean, that's what's also going on here. So I don't think you can simply deride the Democrats for being out of power to this degree. John, what's your chatter? My chatter um, is uh, based on an article in the L.A. Review of Books, and it is about the uh, Great Dog and Cat Massacre of 1939. (laughs) Uh, In 1939, the citizens of London, this is from the L.A. Review of Books, set about killing their pets during the first four days of World War II. Over 400,000 dogs and cats, some 26% of London's pets, were slaughtered, a number six times greater than the number of civilian deaths in the U.K. from bombing during the entire war. Anyway, it goes on to talk about the calm and orderly killing of these pets and that it actually wasn't that necessary, that basically in the panic of the beginning of the war, they did this because people thought, like, how can we possibly take care of these pets when we're going to be facing conditions where we can't perhaps even take care of ourselves? So this is a book review of a book actually by Hilda Keen called The Great uh, Cat and Dog Massacre, The Real Story of World War II's Unknown Tragedy. And the book apparently goes on to argue basically about this is a hinge point in the diff- in the domestication of animals between when we have them for when they were kept for the uh, purposes of, you know, dogs were used for security and hunting and cats for pest control and that their status as companion animals was not their main benefit. So that, uh, you know, there's a larger uh, story here about, I mean, there's not just the fact of this massacre, but then the, the changing way in which we now, as we look at pets now, we'd be like, oh my God, that's such a tragedy. But they didn't think about them back then, which is just a reminder to all of us who think and study history about keeping things in their current context. That's really interesting. I've never heard of that. One of my favorite monuments, there is a, this is not exactly on point. There's a monument in London, something like a traffic median to the animals that served in war. I think it's to the animals that served in World War One. Oh, yeah. I feel like I've seen that. It's just a beautiful, very poignant monument. Hor- millions and millions of horses, horses. died in what, World War One, in particular. But then there are all these other animals. And it's a, a the statue is quite, it's quite lovely and, and uh, touching. My chatter is about a great podcast episode I listened to. I, I like the Sporkful podcast that Dan Pashman, a former Slate associate of ours, has. It's a podcast about food and food culture and food ways. Uh, his new episode is about Rosa Parks's pancake recipe. And it turns out that Rosa Parks wrote down, scribbled on a notebook, a, a, or an envelope, excuse me, a, a recipe for pancakes. And Pashman does a whole episode about this recipe and kind of its significance because it turns out it's a recipe that includes peanut butter. And why would a pancake recipe have peanut butter? It's because Parks is a Southerner and grew up in Tuskegee, the home of George Washington Carver. Um, and where, you know, Carver is, of course, the, the, the godfather of all great peanut use in the United States. It's a recipe that she cooked when she'd moved north. So it's about Parks's life as a Southern migrant in the north after the the Montgomery bus, bus boycott. And then the whole thing is framed and it's very tense, like, because we know Pashman is going to cook this recipe. Is it going to be any good? And so the question of what, what these pancakes will ultimately taste like, there's a visit with Parks's nieces who cook some of other Parks's food. It's just a great, great, uh, completely unlikely podcast. I strongly recommend it.
It's a very fun half hour. Also, reminder, Obscure Day is this Saturday. If you're listening before Saturday, May 6th, this Saturday, get out and explore the world. And we have 180 events going on, but you should go out and explore something around you. It's a holiday to celebrate exploration and discovery. So get out there. <laughs> also, one more thing, a third chatter, if you will, which is that the Isaac Chotner's great interview podcast, I have to ask, has John Chait, Jonathan Chait, on this week. John is a writer for New York Magazine. He's the author of a new book, Audacity, How Barack Obama Defied His Critics and Created a Legacy That Will Prevail. Chait, who's an old friend of mine, is so smart and so interesting and funny, self-aware and ironic and wonderful. Isaac's a great interviewer and John's a great talker. So what could be better? So check out I Have to Ask. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lickteig is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Annie Bowers is chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at slategabfest. And our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. That will really help us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will hope to have a healthcare show for you tomorrow, Friday. And we hope to see a lot of you at our live show in Washington next Wednesday night. And you can still get tickets at slate.com slash live. That's Wednesday, May 10th at the Warner Theater. Thank you. Goodbye. Hi. This is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.